It's episode number 32 of the Presentable Podcast, and I'm your host, Jeff Veen. Today on the show is Sarah Nelson. She's a studio lead designer at IBM who is spending her time redesigning the physical spaces where design happens at the company. We talk about how both physical and cultural forces shape the decisions we make about the places where we work and how to hack your office to be more creative. So let's get right to it. Wait, you're in a radio studio at work? I know, right? It's very, yeah, I'm in a room that is our IBM community radio. I think it's actually called Cloud Radio now. <laughs> and it's uh, it's really cool. It's um, an amazing setup. There are people that come in and DJ, and there are shows that our studios do all from all around the world, mostly music, but some conversation shows too. Yeah, it's like an amazing thing. And this, wait, this goes out to IBM employees or is this like a public thing? No, it's IBM employees, but we have 400,000 of them. So it's a pretty big, it's a pretty big audience. There are many smaller countries than the size of the company that you know and work for, Sarah. Yeah, I just came back from Luxembourg, which is like (laughs) 300,000. Yeah, yeah, it kind of blows my mind when I think about it. Um, But then I just think about it in smaller chunks and then I then it's <laughs> less <laughs> well, difficult. It's the only way to get our human minds to comprehend something so big, I would imagine, is to say, well, who are the people I know, right? It's the, what, yeah. what, what is this, the, the, the psychological law around that, like it's named after somebody I can't remember now, but the idea that like you can't keep a community more than 250 people in your head or something like that, what was it's it? It's even smaller. It's like a hundred, I can't remember the guy's rule right now, but I have a set of magic numbers that I like. And what, what are your magic numbers? See, my numbers are, are, there are 11, well, there are three for groups. This is for groups. So three, 11, 20-ish, 35, 70, and 150. And each one of those numbers has a different um, quality of interaction, um, different communication needs nice. as well, different, different emotional crises that happen at certain ones. Like 35 is a, a big moment for a group where, Everything we did before doesn't work anymore. And so there's often a lot of like, who are we? Who are we becoming? Identity crisis. Um, The need to set up tools, but not enough people to do that. But if you don't set up the tools for the growth, then when you get to 70, you're in a world of hurt. Yeah. Yeah. No, I hear this all the time with the startup founders that I work with. It is it is literally like you you cross over 20 people in your company and you start to get to 30, 35 and nothing works anymore. I can't keep up with Slack. Our meetings are a mess. Like, oh my God, we have to reinvent everything. And yeah, you're absolutely right. And then you cross over. But 150 is that big number is the one that your brain stops being able to hold more relationships than that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because it is not just the people that I know that I keep track of and, and how, and my interaction with them, but I'm also trying to keep track of their interactions with each other. And that is of course an exponent. And so at some point, like, uh, I know how I feel about him and how he feels about her, but now I've lost track of all of this. And now I don't feel like we're one cohesive group anymore. So yeah. Yeah. Nope. yeah. And then when you cross <laughs> yeah. over about 375,000 people, it changes again, right? <laughs> it just becomes like a whole different animal. The way that what I, what I learned like almost immediately, I had to change my mindset, um, to think about it as one big collective brain and mm. everybody's got a piece of the puzzle and the job is sometimes is to find that person who has that piece. And you can often find them within one to two contacts. So, um, and everybody, because everybody's in the same boat, 
people are very willing to talk oh, about whatever it is they do. So they're very generous that way. So if you just contact someone and you just say, who are you? What do you do? Um, and they are, people are really willing to talk. Um, we've got a lot of new tools to like, you know, the Slack, we love the Slack, um, and that are really changing the way communication works. Yeah. So that even makes it, um, just even more accessible. Uh, and that's just, that's just how you're just sort of constantly on it. Like, what do you know? Who do you know? Right. Right. <laughs> so in some ways it's like networking in the outside world. Yeah. Um, that you do the same, you, you have, we have internal social media things where, where you're like, Hey, this is what I'm doing. And that attracts people and you start to find your tribe. And, um, and that I really enjoyed that. Um, I think as far as I can tell the people who are really successful here too, figure that out. Yeah. Sounds don't, like don't stay in their little silos. Right, right, right. All right. So you are a designer that works at this very, very large company, but you have carved out a sort of uh, specialty that I did not know about you, that you had a particular interest in. And that is how physical space that teams inhabit affects their, their creative output, their ability to work together, the success of their projects and things like that. So you spend a lot of time on space planning. Yeah, which is, it's interesting because um, you wouldn't know about it because I didn't know about it um, <laughs> when I started here. Um, so my specialty has been about creativity and collaboration, and I focus mostly on um, teamwork and the emotional, like the emotional relationships, even like the whole body, like the whole nervous system response to collaboration and how all that affects creativity and what levers can you push to really help a creative team work. And so that's a really highly specialized thing to do. And I was consulting on that. Um, the opportunity came here to join IBM Design, which is doing this design-driven transformation across this 400,000-person company. Right. And specifically on the studios team, and the studios, we have 42-plus of them, design studios around the world. And we didn't even know that at the beginning. We were like, I think there might be 10. Um, but the question was, how do you make a network of spaces where design happens um, and that has consistent experiences for clients, but is sharing information and ideas between them becomes a culture of design at IBM. But part of that is it's places. It's about these um, spaces that people are actually inhabiting um, both literally in a physical space. And then also I, I call them spiritual studios. <laughs> the, I like that. The, the things that are the, the, like the bits and bites that are going between all these places. And so part of that, I mean, people are building studios and they are, you know, they're doing everything from going into co-working spaces to building these places from the ground up to guerrilla building in basements, um, sort of passion projects. And so that became a big part of it became a conversation about what is the right kind of space for you, um, for what we're doing. Um, how does that, how does that support the design? And it's really, I think what I really got to is like, it's clearly not about the furniture. Um, even though everyone starts with that, they would come and ask right. me for like furniture lists. And I was like, I don't know, get a desk. Like I, you know, here's a list that the real estate people have, but that's not the problem you're trying to solve. And so that's when I really got into, well, what, what is it about space that is so important to culture that is often, I mean, it really affects happiness um, oh gosh, too. Yeah. yeah. And so I just really, I started exploring like, what is this industry talking about? Like the real estate, the architecture, interior design, how are they talking about future work? And I just got to the place where um, the impact of culture 
on the impact of space on culture and culture on space. It's really this symbiotic relationship that you um, keep track of. So, you know, they there's this kind of idealized um, floor plans that you see, like this is what the metrics are for the space, X number of desks to X number of conference rooms to X number of phone booths um, and copy, like copy bars. Right. And they kind of put these in as these idealized um, maps, but then the minute people hit it, they, they change it. Um, and things don't work the way you think they're going to work. And, and these are expensive installations. Mm. Um, so it, it's been interesting to see, I mean, specifically I'm sitting in a prototype studio that Adam Cutler, um, who is one of the um, distinguished designers here, um, really had a vision for, and, and they treated it as a prototype. So they, um, had an initial space over in another building um, where they came in one day and the designers had um, uh, cordless screwdrivers and they were dismantling <laughs> furniture. And then they were like, well, that's interesting. And then they started, when they started building this space over here that is much more refined, you know, it has like images of the historical designers, you know, Eames furniture and stuff like that. Um, but they kept it very open. And they made, they just hacked together a lot of furniture and they worked with the budget that they had and just to learn from it. So this has been the first one. We've seen a lot of evolution in spaces since then. When you were, you were talking about, I've been through this so many times in my career when working at uh, bigger companies, this idea mm-hmm. of like, we are going to create for you a whole new space and it's going to be fantastic. And, uh-huh. uh, and, and there, there is this like, so you have the like, um, operations people, the, the, what do you call those people that deal with this space at a, at a big company? I can't remember. Uh, we call they're like real estate people. Yeah. Probably. Yeah. 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 People, they're usually called something along those lines. Right. Facil- facilities. Facilities. Too. That's the word I'm looking for. So you talk to the facilities people, uh, and, and you've, I, I can sense, okay, there's a design process here. They're doing requirements, mm-hmm. gathering and, and mm-hmm. needs and stuff like that. But the decisions they're making are so uh, ostensibly so permanent. Like they're going to take yeah. walls out or put walls in and, yeah. uh, and all that kind of stuff. Uh, and there is very little sense of prototyping or iteration oh, yeah. or any of that. And what you end up with is the things you were talking about, which seem to appease people in that requirements gathering phase, which is, you know, we're going to put the foosball table over here and you're going to have a coffee yeah. bar here. And those are just amenities, right? That, that could just be on a cart, but, but they build them as these physical things. And it turns out like none of the amenities really matter. And what really matters is I work with these people and we need some space to do the kind yeah. of thing that we need to do. And it's different from the kind of thing they do over there. And um, I've always just found it, well, pr- to be honest, hugely frustrating. Yeah. And I think it is for a, a lot of people. And it, you know, what you're reminding me of is, I mean, part of the journey of getting here is I actually facilitated in my previous work, I facilitated a number of space oriented things um, that were trying to bridge these exact gaps. So f- without without naming any names, there was a project that I worked on um, where I got this kind of emergency call. They were building this massive headquarters. It's gorgeous, this place. And it's, it's very um, visionary in a way, like they, I mean, for this company. Um, so they're putting all this money into it, but they had reached this point where they had this critical decision to make. And the way that they put it to me was um, wheels on desks or not. <laughs> and and they had presented this to the executives who had had like a freak out about it because they hadn't seen anything. And this team had been, as a facilities team, had been prototyping and, and excited about prototyping 
these kind of Uber desks that were kind of modeled on drum kits. So they were they were thinking kind of big about it. And it was it was tailored to the kind of work that was being done there. It was not laptop based. It was very like uh, multiple screens, highly visual. There was like sort of specialty work around it. Yeah. So they, they, they had prototypes hidden in rooms. And and then they're working with a major um, architecture firm who it turned out for them, they were at this point where they were like power outlets in the floor or in the walls. Right. And like these were the decisions that they wanted me to help them make when I came in. And I realized that when I got there, that there was this missing design process that they, and, and an organizational management, like we've been calling it the tax, like executive management tax um, that you have to put on all projects. So they hadn't, they hadn't really done, they had an idea, they'd followed it. They hadn't really done research. And this is all of them, including the big architecture firm. They had done very light research about how people worked and then had gone for it. And so now they found themselves at this critical stage um, and they didn't know how people worked or what people needed. And they couldn't make a case to the executives about why they were making this very expensive proposal. Right. So, um, so I did a series of workshops with them where we brought people in from all over the company to talk about how they worked and to, we, you know, gave them a hypothesis and had them play with different ideas about um, different configurations of space. And every team had autonomy about how they would configure their space, just different proposals. And that helped them make decisions that helped them, you know, but what, but the main point is that they, they didn't have the, let's just say that like the rituals or the knowledge or the habits and practices of doing human centered design. So they're making these very expensive decisions to your point that are not built on the way this company wants to work. And they're not really built on, they're sort of vaguely built on cultural principles, right? but they're not thinking out how it's all going to work. And they're also not, um, there's kind of a, a shallow under, well, in some of the, especially in the facilities folks, there's just, there's not really a focus on what is it? It's like people need to collaborate and it doesn't go further than that. So this is a collaboration space. And so there's just this kind of thinking in the whole industry, like open spaces are good for collaboration. You need a coffee area where people come together. It's kind of this formula. Um, and I've heard this also from like co-working places that are doing enterprise um, offerings. Mm -hmm. And it's, I, you know, I say like, what's your research? And it's much more of a system. How am I going to, how am I going to roll out imagine 400,000 people, how am I going to roll out carpeting yeah. to all these sites? And so there's like a warehouse somewhere that has carpeting tiles in it. And there's a, you know, systems of relationships with um, furniture maker, furniture vendors. And those people do research, but it just doesn't, it kind of ends up translating, at least from my experience, it ends up translating into these system approach, but they're not looking at designers and saying, oh, this group actually works quite differently than that group. Right. of developers. And now there's pair programming. So how's pair programming work? It just doesn't fit into the, um, or it's not responding to the changing needs that are happening. Um, so I just, I mean, I, some of the most successful spaces I've seen um, are places where they are just like dismantling and rebuilding stuff. And facilities people hate that because they can't manage that. Um, it It screws up things like um, well, you have a desk assignment and that desk assignment sits on this grid so that the mail can find you. And I know where your phone is, but nobody has phones <laughs> on their desks anymore and people are moving around all the time. It, um, so it's kind of, it's kind of interesting to me, you know, I'm, I'm starting to do more 
relationship building with property management industry and here too, so I can better understand what their industry is all about. I have a funny story about phones, actually. I was, when I started working at Adobe, I showed up on the first day and there was a one of those corporate like Cisco phones on my desk mm-hmm. already with a light flashing on it saying I had some voicemail or something. Oh my God. <laughs> and to me, that was just like, oh my God, I have not had a desk phone in I don't know how many years. So I, yeah. I unplugged the phone and I put it in the bottom of my filing cabinet. Yeah. And I came back the next, like two days later, um, at, uh, come <laughs> in the morning and there's a phone on my desk and the light is flashing. I'm like, how did they, all right, whatever. So <laughs> I, I, I unplugged the phone again and I opened the drawer, and, but there's a phone it's a new phone. And so yeah. I put the second phone in there and this happened three times. And then finally I had somebody contact facilities and say like, but they insisted to your point, they have a system mm-hmm. and they could yeah. tell like, Oh, a phone is missing. Cause we're not getting signal from it. Go install the new phone. Right. And, mm-hmm. and that's appropriate. You know, this is a many thousands of people work at Adobe and how do you manage yeah. a system like that? Absolutely. Very similar to, I think the kind of like DevOps people that were working on my team that like we have millions of users and we have systems and we have to make sure this all works. But then there's this, this friction and this, uh, yeah. between the reality of, uh, I mean, the phone is a silly example, but, uh, a place to work and a place to collaborate. And I need to be away from the salespeople on their calls all the time and all of that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, a, I mean, that kind of thing is an, is an assumption about how people work that is actually not grounded in the, what's happening at least in product design and product development, right. it doesn't, you know, I, I've had really funny conversations like around security, for instance. I and mean, we've had to do things like there used to be a clean desk policy at many, many places that have, you know, highly secure confidential stuff. But there was one here. And I mean, you couldn't leave a piece of paper on your desk um, that might be confidential when you went to the bathroom. Uh-huh. Like you had to like keep it. And there were people who monitored it. So then you walk into an environment, um, or we, we, we come in as designers and everything's up on the walls. It's on whiteboards. It just stays there. People don't even bother to erase it. And IBMers who've been here a long time come into this environment and they get nervous. Certain, some of them get nervous because this, this looks like you're violating all the confidentiality stuff. And we have tours coming through here all the time. And we've had to do things like double badge. Um, so only certain people can get in here. Um, without escorts um, kind of thing. Um, But I've actually had, and this is just, I don't know, I'm just kind of like dishing a little bit, but I had a conversation (laughs) once where um, the question, and I can't remember who it was with, but the question was, um, it was about agile, like user stories up on whiteboards and that these were confidential. And what needed to happen was um, developers needed a spreadsheet. They needed to code, like have a coded number for the user story up on the board and then have a spreadsheet that translated that coded number into the user story. Yeah. And I was like, well, that is actually defeats the purpose of why you've got them up on the board in the first place. Like you're oh, you, the, the sort of humanizing aspect of it and everything. And now we just have like user number four, two, a B stra- stroke C, right? Like, yeah. And that's supposed to, I was like, so what? And then they were asking us to do the same thing with design. And then it's like, that's just not a thing. And, right, right. and, and luckily, I mean, it was interesting because um, they poked the bear and they got corporate counsel involved who is actually aware of these kinds of emerging issues and is working on that. It's just interesting to me that the way that we're working in design and product design and agile development is pushing these conversations in all these places we don't even really think about, like in the, in legal or in um, facilities in like in tech support. I mean, IBM is Apple's biggest 
customer for laptops and technology. Right. Here, we don't make any hardware anymore. I think we make a couple pieces, but that comes from these sort of prototype places and it becomes it, you know, design needed that. And then it sort of like starts to move out into the rest of the organization, which is, it's just interesting. It's like a place that is just ripe for a new way of working. This episode of Presentable is sponsored by Timing, the smarter way to track time. Time is your most precious resource, and it's important to understand how you're spending it. But manual time tracking can be the opposite of productivity. It interrupts your workflow, and it's easy to lose track of. That's why Timing is different. Timing automates your time tracking to save you as much time as possible. First, it automatically tracks how you spend your time on your Mac, broken down by app, website, or document. But there's a lot of data to work through, so timing lets you drag and drop to create rules that automatically categorize your time. Timing also understands that not all of your work happens on the Mac. That's why it automatically suggests to fill in gaps in your timeline so you never forget to track a meeting. It can even automatically ask you what you did whenever you return to your Mac. I've been using timing every day and really enjoying it. Every morning, I get a little pop-up telling me how productive I've been the day before, and it's sort of turned being focused into a sort of game I play with myself. Can I do a little bit better today? Can I keep my streak going? It's actually pretty fun. So give it a shot. Go download the 14-day trial today by heading to timingapp.com presentable, and you'll save 10% when you purchase. Timing. Stop worrying about time and focus on doing your best work instead. We'd like to thank Timing for their support of this show and all of Relay FM. All right, so I have a question for you about just, just the, is there actually like this dichotomy between like people need their own offices versus open space, or do you see it as much more fluid? And the, the reason why I ask is because I have, the companies that I have had a hand in founding, we've always had open floor plans, Generally by necessity, because uh, it's just, you can fit more people in and it's cheaper it's and cheaper. it's so much cheaper, right? So, so and it works. Cheaper. Yeah. But recently, like I now, I have a very sort of almost nomadic existence with my work mm-hmm. and the way that I'm always over at other people's offices and stuff like that. So I get to see a lot of them and they tend to be small companies that are doing the mm-hmm. same thing. But mm-hmm. I do have an office. I've t- You mentioned co-working earlier. I took a office at WeWork. And it's, uh-huh. it's really funny because whenever I do a, a video conference, I do a lot of video conferencing now uh, as I'm away from a lot of the people in Silicon Valley. And many times I will get on a video conference and people will say to me, are you at a WeWork? Because, uh-huh. and these are global, right? They're all over the world. There's hundreds of them now mm-hmm. and they are all identical. So, yes. so literally people see behind me like that light fixture and that beam and they're like, oh, you're at a WeWork. Yep. But I, but it's, Fascinating to me how much I like the way that they have designed their spaces in that there are these individual offices with doors, uh, frosted glass around the kind of the waist, you know, so that you like when you're sitting down, it's relatively private, but then uh, open glass all the way through. So even if you have an office in the center that you can see out to the street and to the sky and the horizon. Um, And these offices themselves are literally closets, but since they're glass, it's it does not feel claustrophobic at all and I can shut the door and I can do work. But the way that they have designed those open spaces and collaborative spaces and community spaces and those amenities we were talking about is mm-hmm. actually fantastic. The way the flow happens, you run, you literally have to intersect with people to get a cup of coffee or to go to the, uh, to the restroom. Um, and it reminds me a lot of like what I've heard about how Pix- uh, Steve Jobs had a hand in designing the Pixar space. We're going to be very deliberate and explicit about this, but still give people their own private place to do the work when they need to. Yeah, yeah. It, 
so there's a bunch of, I'm going to pack a few things in there. Um, well, so what you're pointing to in WeWork is the idea of an ecosystem of places. Um, it's, I can't remember exactly. I think it might be Gensler talks about the campus model. So does Google. I mean, mm-hmm. Google is doing it. Um, but it's the idea that you can work where and how you need to, which is, of course, for for especially like in the creative disciplines, all like being that being anybody's making something that you need to be able to both be collaborative and have solo work. Right. And autonomy is one of the the biggest draws for people to be able to do the best work that they can and to want to be in an environment. If they don't have a lot of autonomy, they tend really highly creative people tend to go find places where they will get that. Yep. So that extends to spaces too. But they, so the campus model idea is that there are, you know, there might be like little living room kinds of places and there are hot desky places, but you could also have your own desk and you can um, go sit outside and you can go to a coffee shop environment and that there are just different kinds of things. And that's what WeWork is doing too. I actually was reflecting that the only time I've ever had an office was my first job out of college. Huh. I, ha- I had an actual office and everybody had offices and Ever since then, I always worked in these open environments. Um, and I think, you know, I, there is like, like I say, you know, we all know that there needs to be both focus and we need collaboration. And one of the things like open spaces definitely make it easier to have a very casual, um, quick conversation that solves a problem quickly. They're also good sometimes for gathering around like a, a stand up in the morning or these kinds of like having a couple of zones inside your team space. Hmm. You know, we have a, we have a master inventor who sits here who has an office somewhere. Sorry, in what now? A master inventor. So they are um, people who are, who have achieved a certain amount of technical accomplishment um, and, and brought new things. So there, it's a designation. So got we it, have, got it, yeah. we have all these, like I mentioned distinguished designer earlier. They are, they are people who've um, accomplished a certain kind of um, outcomes and they actually go through a whole rigorous uh, committee process to get these designations. So he's a technical person. He sits on a, a design team here where he comes in and sits. And he's able to catch people who, like designers, do they know the ins and outs of the technology and security? Up to a point. But he's able to catch them before they go too far down a road. And he swears by that. Cool. Yeah. So, so there's that kind of collaboration. But what's interesting is the flip side of it is there's also a sloppiness to collaboration that happens. We don't really, you know, let's not put in as much intention to why we're having these um, off-the-cuff conversations. Like what, you know, and you tend to have more of those than a, like, let's go sit in a room for an hour and really work through this thing. There there can kind of be that, um, just sort of like, you know, it. I feel like it exas- exacerbates the, we're just going, 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 doing, 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 but where are we going? <laughs> right. So... That importance of like getting a group together in a space that is supportive of group collaboration to intentionally tackle a problem, to ask kind of meta questions about what's the outcomes we're trying to get to, you know, what's important here, prioritization, that kind of stuff. Some open spaces don't really, it makes it easier to just ignore that part. People want to ignore the big thinking, um, important but not urgent stuff anyway. <laughs> so if the space doesn't encourage them to do that, so that's, that, that's, one thing, I mean, what was interesting about my experiences with WeWork, because I had an office at WeWork too, and I really, it was in the early, like some of their early ones in San Francisco. Um, and my experiences with them, like those frosted things, it works really well, unless you're trying to do design work that you need 
a couple of things up on the wall around you, yeah. you can't actually put them up because it cuts the point of that, which is getting light in. That is like, it's a struggle for teams that I know that are there sometimes because they, they can't put stuff up because there's like an intention of the architecture of the space that it's violating. Um, I've been in other places too, where it's like, oh, who loves exposed brick walls? Can't stick anything to it. Right, right. <laughs> you know, they're, yeah. they're beautiful but not functional. So um, I think it's it's always that that tension because I agree with you, like the light and that being able to feel like you're part of something but you have privacy. There's another aspect to it too, which I think often goes unacknowledged, which is that you can walk in and everybody can be in their offices and doing deep work or whatever, but you also get a sense of, oh, there's a bunch of people here and activity is happening. Yeah. Right. As yeah. which you always get with the open office. You just you can yeah. look around. But this there was I, I find that balance like, oh, there's a it felt like the, there was no opportunity to be lonely. There's a lot of people here, as opposed yeah. to if they were all just solid walls and like, oh, I don't know, am I the only one here? There are ten know. people here, there are a thousand people here. Yeah, you've probably been to some of like the I mean, it's interesting because the idea of a co-working space is not new. There were all these like you know, rent rent an office places, but oh, like the Regis, um, Regis, these terrible, yeah. Oh. yeah, and that's because they're just all solid walls, and they're like offices that are, you know, they don't they don't have any character to them. But yeah, it's, I think activity is important as well in this in a balance. So there's a thing about noise. Noise can be really good for productivity and creativity um, if it's at the right kind of level. So you, know, you get all these things like I think it's. Uh, I can't remember what it's called. There's a, a website where you can get recordings of coffee shops for if you work at home. <laughs> and so you can get that kind of murmur of, of activity that makes you feel like you're around something. You know, it's why, you know, why you can be more productive in coffee shops. It's got this almost white noise, but still human sounding thing to it. If it's too, if there's not enough noise, it can be like you know, almost like you hear your own heartbeat. <laughs> right. And that, right. that can be isolating because we're, we're social creatures. But if you have sound that is recognizable, so um, loud laughter, conversations where it's very distinct what people are saying, that is also distracting. There's a balance that you can get. But I think that key is that feeling like you're connected in some way to other human beings. In creativity, you go slower when you're by yourself. You often go faster in a pair yeah. um, through ideas or you get lost in an idea that you love and it actually really sucks. And yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> you don't know it because you're in love with it and you haven't tested it with anyone. So I think just being around that, that you know, reminding yourself to be around people. Right. It's, but it's all about this balance of always like in creativity, it's collaboration and focus and collaboration and focus. And so I think spaces really need to accommodate that. Both of those kind of modalities, right? Back and forth. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Otherwise people will go work at home to do it. If, it. if the space doesn't do it, then they'll go work at home, which there's nothing wrong with remote. I mean, I think there's a lot of stuff going on with remote working that's pretty interesting. But if you have a place that ends up being vacant because it's not conducive, it's either too quiet or too distracting and people leave, then you're, then you're damaging that. Yeah. The power of the collaboration. Yeah, yeah. So th- it seems like the obvious question to all of this that many people listening must have is, you know, what, what can I do about this? Like, I'm a designer at a company, and yeah. should I go get a, uh, a drill and start taking apart my cube? Yeah. Like, <laughs> I mean, I would say yes, but well, I'm yeah. also not. I mean, is that scene from Office Space, right? <laughs> I, totally. I mean, I, I love that. I kind of. I went, I did, when I did the talk at Mind the Product, I was like, what is the spirit? Oh, it's the spirit of him walking in with that drill and flip flops and just 
pushing it over, like unscrewing it and pushing it over. Yeah. And I think the 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 places that I've seen, so I do think that that is that is the the approach. And if you know what I'm seeing here at IBM is that there's a real drive in the real estate organization to learn from these behaviors. I mean, not across the board. There's people who've you know they've invested their whole lives in one way of working, but there's a, a strong contingent that is getting really curious about what's happening in these places and then bringing it like, how can we then, you know, it, you always have to think about scalability in this environment. They're asking those questions, mm-hmm. but so, so to get back to it, a lot of it actually comes to the organization empowering people to do that and not punishing or being like bureaucratic about it. So it's this empowered ownership. The, uh, the opposite example is I've seen a place where like the facilities person came with a clipboard, didn't talk to anybody, and then would send an email that says you can't have anything on the walls and office supplies can't be visible. Yeah, and right. so, but, but the solution to that was that the, the leader stood for the way they, they worked and did it anyway. And then she went to the mat every time they came and um, complained about it. And I've seen that in a number of organizations where they, they're in cubicles they need wall space. They just take over the windows. Hmm. Still, these people hate that because yeah. it looks terrible from the outside. But if they do, or they would just camp in a office and in a conference room and make it a project room. And over time, they won that fight because people could see what it was, why they were doing it. And they had leadership that was going to the map for them. I just went, I, after the mind, the product, I got to spend um, the day in our Hursley site, which is, um, it's one About of your hour. IBM offices in yeah, UK. Yeah, it, it's amazing because it's um, it's actually a national trust estate that IBM bought. I think maybe in the seventies. So it it has this really unusual. I mean, it's like gorgeous grounds with like cricket pitches and stuff like that on it. <laughs> but they have all these older spaces that they've built around the estate building, the original estate building. They've been there for a while, and they're in need of upgrading in different ways. The way that it's working there is they have a very strong site manager um, who has a vision for making this a place that people really want to be. And he is not from the real estate industry. He is a DevOps. He's a former development manager. So he doesn't have that background. So he doesn't, in some ways, he, he would probably say like he didn't know what he didn't know. Right. And so he just is doing the stuff. He's really good at making good arguments for why things need to be done and tying them into things like health and safety and like making projects that are solving physical real problems and are helping the teams work better together. So when you walk through the site, you'll go through sections that are just cubicle parts are just lying against walls. Mm. And and the people have found furniture from various places and they have made small stand-up areas or um, small kind of more casual team working areas. And he supports it, and he works with Riso to understand why they're doing it. Interesting. And so I think you have to look at it at a couple levels. There's the management level of a team, too, that says, like, let's make this the way we need to make it, and then I will help have the conversations. But, you know, you guys can go do this. We're going to say yes to you. That's a much more progressive approach to it. Um, it is. Um, it doesn't always – I mean, that, isn't, that doesn't always answer the question for people who don't have that kind of support. And there's one team that I talked to after Mind the Product that they decided they were, all five of them were going to go in in the middle of the night and redo their space and then take the consequences. That, <laughs> Which I was like, please take pictures <laughs> when you do that. Um, so I think some of it is is doing that and seeing what the consequences are really going to be. Yeah. 
Yeah. You know, but I also think there's a lot about making building relationships with the facilities people um, because they they you know they they've just as far as I understand it and I'm I'm starting to look at going to their conferences and stuff um, mm. to see how they talk about it um, because they are held to money um, metrics and efficiency being able to scale things um, all of there there's a certain way the industry has worked and they are held to those to account for that stuff and so it, we, I think we have to also understand that. So part of it is just showing um, and provoking, I think. The other part is, of course, relationship development. Yeah, which is, frankly, the fundamental skill that any design leader has to have is yeah. not just the sort of relationship with the members of my team, but relationship with all of the stakeholders outside. Um, and, you know, the, there you go. There's another one, like the people who actually are uh, responsible for the space in which you exist. All right, so I read this book. Oh, it's got to be at least 15 years ago now. That was hugely influential in, in how I think about design mm. in general, but but it was a specifically about space, and it's from Stuart Brand, and it's called uh -huh. how, how Buildings Learn. To me, it is part of the canon. It goes with Don Norman's The Design uh -huh. of Everyday Thing and Edward Tufte's uh, Envisioning Information. Like These are, everybody should read these books, but Stuart's book on How Buildings Learn is all about looking at old buildings that have been adapted and mm -hmm. seeing how people do those adaptations to understand uh, how physical space responds to the inhabitants that are in there. And like one of the yeah. one of the things that uh, is just an absolute truism around around the world, frankly, is that it's, there's very little interesting things to learn from the front of a building. Everything that's interesting is in the back, right? Because mm -hmm. <laughs> that's where the people are. The front, yeah. the front is generally like almost like an architectural period cast in amber. We're never going to change this. I mean, certainly in London, if you're yeah. like a grade list, grade two listed building and, um, and you have a terrace house, like nothing is going to change on the front of your, oh, right. or the front of your house and, and yeah. has not for 120 years. Right. But if you go around back, like people are doing all kinds of stuff back there and it's amazing. Right. And so anyway, he has this whole idea of pace layers, which is like, mm -hmm. how hard is it to change a particular thing? Right. Like, on the surface layer at the top, like you can put pictures up and you can take them down, you can paint the walls. Mm -hmm. That's, that's, you know, and then there's the furnishings, a little harder to change for more expensive mm -hmm. and heavier. There's the, the layout of the walls, the stuff that's in the walls. There's the floor plan. Like he goes all the way through all of these layers. And I'll put some links in the show notes to some visualizations of this stuff. But that mm -hmm. was usually influential when I think about like how easy it is to frankly change the CSS of a website versus yes. swap out data architectures. And there's exactly. ample, there's yeah. just analogies all the way through for this stuff. So yeah, I imagine you've you've been through that as well. Yeah, I mean, so I love that book. I mean, I, I think I read that book long before I was, you know, interested um, really looking at space. So it, but it influenced me because it that rates of change, um, the system level change of like plumbing versus the the pictures right. on the wall. I love that. The other thing I think can be, it's really useful. I mean, this is a definite crossover to, into product design. It's really useful to look at these lateral are like our cousins in other creative disciplines and how mm -hmm. they think about it. I think one of the most influential classes for me in college, and I still think about this, it was called the theater of politics. And it was all about 14th, let's see, Elizabethan. So is that 15th century? I can't remember when Shakespeare is like 15th and 16th century or 13th and 14th. I can't remember, yep, yep. but um, the Elizabethan period and the Cromwell period in England and how the theaters were designed um, and how the theaters reflected the politics of the time. 
So they're everything from, you know, where do boxes and and theaters come from? Well, boxes come from a class system. Mm, um, That's, and, and it's a visibility piece. So you want to be, you're at the theater, not just to see the theater. In fact, you're probably there more to be visible in society and it shows rank. The king is the most visible. Often the king would have, or the, the royalty, the leadership would have a secret entrance that they would just go through and then appear in the theater and nobody, it's like magic, right? Suddenly Uh they're there. But then you go to theaters of today and they are democratic. They reflect a democracy. They are, um, in general, I mean, you still, the richer people sit up front with the more expensive, better views, but in general, it is, it is about, it reflects that like bootstrappy belief as opposed to you are designated and allowed to have that. Um, so even if you go to, you know, if you've ever been to those theaters and you're like, there's a box on the stage and it's facing the audience, what is that about? Again, that's not about theater, watching the piece. That's about being seen to be watching the piece. So, but the point is, is that you can learn a lot from what the spaces are telling you about the culture and what the, how the culture is affecting the design of the spaces. And I think, I think it's that kind of like the, the matrix layer where all of a sudden, like the environment that we're in starts to be revealed. And the same thing, of course, is happening in product design. We make choices about what goes into a product or not, um, often based on these sort of softer things. So we, you know, we can give like, quote, like hard data and dollar values and markets and things, but there's a lot of choices we're making that are um, intrinsic to the, the beliefs and the beliefs of the culture. And that's why we're having so many conversations about diversity. And because we often in a sort of a privilege, like a, a, a white a certain class is making a lot of the products and we're not actually making them for the understanding the cultures that they're going into and what the impact of that is going to be. Right. So having more diversity. So that's that, like basically the a fish can't see water thing. Um, and all of these things around us, the space, the way we behave, the tools that we use are, are impacting the kinds of choices that we make about all kinds of things. So I, I nerd out about that stuff, clearly. <laughs> that's great. There's so much fodder there to dig into. Yeah. That's that's yeah. that's fantastic. Any other recommendations for people who are thinking about space, uh, what they should be looking at or reading? or um, Can we point some people somewhere? Yeah, I've got two really great books. Um, one is Make Space. Um, and I think it comes out of Stanford and the D School somehow. Um, and I don't have a good enough reference for that. But what is really nice about it, it's kind of oriented towards learning spaces a little bit more and towards education spaces. Um, but they have um, how to a lot of this, like how to hack a space to make it work for new ways of working. And they have yeah. literally like patterns and recipes. And we use some of their things here that way. So make space. Um, plus, it's a beautiful book for all the design nerds out there. And then another one that I really changed, gave me a, a window into these folks we're talking about, the facilities, real estate, architecture, is a book called Change Your Space, Change Your Culture. And um, it is written for that industry by people in that industry with the intention of changing the way the industry thinks about designing spaces. So you get a window into how the industry is working, how it has worked, what its sort of beliefs and values are, and this um, impulse to change it as well. Um, there's also some, so that would be one, this change your space, change your culture, make space. Then, and something I haven't dug into that much, but is, and I'd be curious if, you know, folks dig into it more and feedback to me about it, but it's this idea of space as a service. When I finished the Mind the Product, I actually got tweets and direct messages from people who are in the property, that kind of real estate space, yeah. who are like, she's talking about space as a service, space as a service. 
So this is something that that whole industry is thinking about, at least some people are, and in that desire and drive to innovate it. So I think that's something else that would be interesting for folks just to, if you're nerding out about design process. Yeah. That seems like a ladder. All cousins are working on something like that. Yeah, yeah. You mentioned a couple of times mind the product. And I'll just clarify. Oh, yeah. That was a uh, conference a couple of weeks ago here in London. There's another one in San Francisco. I find it one, frankly, one of the best conferences for product people is absolutely fantastic. And you gave a talk on space, and I thought that was great. I'm not sure they have the videos up yet, but I'll go check. And if they do, I'll put the link in the show notes. Uh, have you given this talk elsewhere? No, it was really the first time that it came together like that. Um, where I really just said, like, this is going to be about this very specific culture effects, space effects culture. Yep. And it really helped me articulate a lot of the work that I've been doing. Yep. So that was the first time I gave it. Um, and it felt like, I mean, I often give talks like this at conferences where I'm like, I'm going to talk about something that may not initially on the surface seem directly related to the things that people want to do. Like, we're, you know, we're thinking about... Um, product strategy or yeah. we're thinking, you know, like very, that kind of more like tools oriented or um, case studies. And so I'll have to come in and say, well, let's talk about the emotional experience of change, which you are all experiencing. And you're, you're actually fighting against that. And human beings have a strong response to being asked to change something or like in this case, the, the, um, the space work. So it felt like a, it was a leap to me. And I was like, I don't know how people are going to respond to this. I think it's interesting. And I got a lot of really great response. So yeah, I mean, I, I've been sort of toying with a, like a book and doing more writing about it because I just think it's a conversation Good. that we don't, we don't really have. Yeah, I know. Yay, writing. Um, I'm <laughs> much more of a talker, as you can tell. But. <laughs> so where can I uh, point some people to find out more about what you're thinking about, what you're doing? You're on Twitter at Sarah B with four, three, three Bs, three, three E's, right? Three E's. Yeah, <laughs> three E's. That's probably the best place. I'm going to be posting more about it. And I'm also, um, sarahbnelson.com um, okay. is going back up, but I, I don't have a lot of writing there yet about it. So I, I, go, I go to my Twitter. I'll put links Twitter. to those in the show notes and people can go check that out. This was awesome. It's so good to catch up and I know, start nice. thinking about just all of the factors that influence the way our creative work happens together, including the space we're sitting in. So thank you so much. Yay. Excellent. Thank you. And that's another episode of Presentable. Hey, got any questions? You can email us at hello at presentable.fm or get in touch via Twitter by following Presentable FM. We hope you've really enjoyed the show. And if you do, could you take a moment and give us a rating on iTunes? It really helps and we'd really appreciate it. Thanks for listening. And until next time, I'm Jeffrey Veen, and this was Presentable. Presentable.